drunken way, and they're all drunk the first time. But it, I think that's an attribute, not a negative thing. Say, yeah. yeah, say more about that. So, so again, the material chides Xerxes for not, or a hazardous, right, for not making his own decision, but going to advisors only. He never knows what to do. Yeah. But, but say how that's an at, a, 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 a positive. I think good leaders um, get have advisors and they use them all the time. I, I think that's important. I I didn't see it as be, him being indecisive. I guess my take on it. So. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Like consulting your cabinet yeah. is a sign of wisdom, not of weakness. Or you know, my husband had a sergeant major, and I mean, I, I just. Wise, if you're going to make a decision that affects someone's life, you say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Yeah. What did it's you? A drunken party thing. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, what, and what did you think about? The, I, I thought the interesting thing in the in the writing material was where they said, "Well, let's make a law saying a man is uh, <laughs> a man is to be obeyed in his own home." I mean, what an interesting law that is. Uh, how one enforces that, I have no idea. And, and you, you know, I mean, I think that was probably what they were pushing at, was that the council had this very strange response um, to, to legislate something that they can't legislate. I've been around young men talking about women before, and I, that's, Boy. Not all, that's not at all weird. Yeah. I think we should be in charge of everything. It's interesting that you just made that comment about what drunk men do, because again, that that was on the national stage less than two weeks ago. Appallingly, well, I think, sorry, appallingly, how that sort of got parsed out. And in some ways, we can look at this and say, look how different, not how different things are. That may not be what you wanted to talk about, though. So. But, but I appreciate that. It's, it's wise to see. I mean, I, I get that. But the, uh, the Bible is the living word of God, so yeah, it does apply to today. In other words, we look back at that and say, okay, how do we compare and how are we different and what do we need to do to get better? I do want to push you on that. The, according to the Bible, the living word of God is Jesus, not the Bible. Okay. <laughs> And this is really critical, because I grew up at the Bible was. But when you read those verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, that's talking about Jesus. And we just read in Hebrews that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, but it goes on to say that the Word of God is not the Bible, but Jesus. <laughs> so... I'm not being naughty, but you know Martin Luther was really good about this. Martin Luther said the Bible is like the manger; it holds Jesus, but it isn't Him. But still, we can look at human behavior. The Absolutely. Yes. And I think this is maybe one of the differences, if you didn't mind. I don't want to be like pushy, but for me, one of the differences between Jesus and the Bible is that the Bible sometimes is very good at describing us as we are. And sometimes we might say, oh, that description is who we should be. Um, I, I think Jesus is much better at pushing us where we should go. And the Bible, I think, is very good at describing who we are, which are these people. <laughs> But we should not be these people. And that's where I think, interestingly, Bible and Jesus work together very, very well. I think sometimes 
we can read particularly Hebrew Bible when we talk about God wanting uh, the Amalekites to be completely destroyed and, and ask, is that what the resurrected Jesus would want? I would say no. But that does, does that describe who we are as human beings? Absolutely. So I think the scriptures offer us this amazing portrait of ourselves. We often think God's so ugly, but quite honestly, we've got that ugly side. And then I think we've got this view in the resurrection of where God actually might want us to go instead of that. Is that I, I hope that's helpful. And I don't think that takes away from inspiration at, at all. Um, but maybe that's just because I've made that choice. <laughs> but there's no way, I just want to say there's no way God is interested in genocide because the, the ten words God gives Moses say don't murder, and Jesus says that too. So there's this conflict of faith, like this, is God arbitrary and changes God's mind, like, well, it's okay to kill some people, but not others, and times are changing. That seems really hard to... To, to believe that and believe that God doesn't change and God is eternally loving, right? So in my head, part of this story is, honestly, we sometimes hear God saying stuff that God was never saying. Yeah, it's the human <laughs> condition of the time. The whole thing about the, um, when Saul lost his throne because uh, he didn't murder... Um, including the animals and the babies. And, uh, no, he did murder the babies. He, he, he killed all the people. Uh, uh, just he took the livestock. <laughs> he took the livestock so he could kill them, but... But for him. No, no, this is really good that you've mentioned this, right? I mean, it, and, and this is a good thing to say. Because I didn't understand. You won't be able to understand this when I get done with this. <laughs> Saul means asked for. So going back, Saul's the first king of Israel, and the scriptures say he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Head and shoulders taller. So putting that in perspective, it doesn't matter how tall. I've read reports that, you know, ancient Hebrew people were five foot two, and so Saul's five foot eight. What it didn't matter, Saul's a giant. And they wanted a king who would lead the army onto the field of battle because in the olden days, um, the king was the leader of the battle, not like Napoleon in the back directing. The king was one bad dude. <laughs> um, and here's your bad dude. He's bigger than everybody else, right? Uh, Saul doesn't want to be king, though. That's the interesting thing. He hides in the luggage, uh, he's made king. He doesn't centralize. He just lives in his own territory. And from time to time, he tells people, hey, let's all join forces and deal with this common enemy. Um, he gets a really bad rap in Samuel, but let's look at this incident in particular. The commandment is, kill everything, take no plunder. Kill all the people, men, women, children. He does that, except he saves the king, and he saves the good animals to sacrifice to God. He plans to kill the animals. That's very clear. <laughs> he just isn't going to slay them where they are. He's going to do it ritually. I would tell you, I think he plans to do the same thing with the king. I don't think Saul wants to keep Agag prisoner. I think he plans 
to sacrifice him before God instead of on the field of battle. But he gets labeled as this being this really awful guy because he doesn't follow the command, but I, well, I don't know. You can read it your own way, but he's not keeping those animals for himself. He's going to sacrifice. There's no reason not to believe him that he's going to sacrifice the animals. He killed all the men, women, and children and again took the king hostage. That's pretty normal. You don't keep... It's not like he's going to ransom the king. All the people are dead. Well, I don't understand why that's the standard, though. I, and I... It, years ago when... Um, I just couldn't understand the killing of the children, especially at a time when slaves weren't treated like we treated them in this country. Yeah. So I, I just don't understand that I, I think I can try to explain that, but I do want to first say this business about taking the king hostage and then killing them in front of the people, not on the battlefield, the, the root of that, I mean, that's, that's what Julius Caesar did after um, subduing the Gauls. He took Galvingatorix back to Rome and strangled him in front of everybody. And so, so there's precedent that that's what you do. You take the king captive so you can kill the king in front of the people, not in front of the warriors. Does that sort of make sense? It's really a sign of your national dominance. Because in the battlefield, things go crazy. Anybody could get killed, but when the king's your prisoner and you put them to death, it, it's sort of a stronger symbol. You, you may not agree with doing that, but I just want to say that's how it was done. The bit about the kids is an interesting thing because we... we um, <laughs> There's this word in the Hebrew Bible called harem, which is translated as holy war. We falsely think that this is what jihad means in Arabic. It does not mean that at all. Um, harem means when you fight a holy war, you do it sort of at this religious level, and there's nothing to be gained. So the, way, the rules for holy war are you kill everything and you burn up all the commodities so that you profit nothing. And that would have been like um, in this war with Iraq. I mean, just want to spell this out. It would have been killing every human being and it would have been unearthing all the oil and just burning it up. <laughs> because who would fight that war? You're risking your life and you get nothing. You don't get any spoils. You don't get any children to be your slaves. You don't get any women to be your concubines. I mean, this is a war you fight with no reward. And sort of that's then what makes it a holy war. Then you have to think through, right? Well, is that really holy to do that wholesale slaughter? I think in general, every time the people go to do a holy war, they never do it. <laughs> because no one would risk their life for nothing. Some people might, but notice the community never does it. Never. Not one time do they follow this injunction. And Joshua is commanded to do this in Jericho, but remember, Achan steals silver and steals some fancy clothes. He may be the only one, or he may be a representative, because again, you're putting your life on the line without pay. Soldiers weren't paid. These are militia. For what? <laughs> In some ways, we could read that God is prescribing that, but another way we could hear, I think, this describing, we're really not that selfless after all. 
So the holy war, <clears throat> I would ask them why do it. I know they didn't do it. Yeah, why do it? I, I think it's probably a description of something that's never happened to sort of differentiate the ways that we fight selfishly from um, really thinking about what selfless action looks like. Now, the particulars are nasty, so I'm, I'm, I'm stepping way back from the particulars. But again, just sort of thinking through um, why do we do the struggles that we do. Jihad, interestingly enough, um, it doesn't mean holy war. It means a holy struggle to bring sort of your faith into complete realization in your life. So it's become this thing, jihad is like where you blow yourself up in a plane. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, that's become our Western understanding because here are people willing to sacrifice themselves for this you know, religious ideal. But in Islam, that's not really the idea. The... <laughs> Jihad really means total discipleship. And, and does God want us to give up our life and end it, or does God want us to live our life in support of other people? You can't really support other people when you're gone. Does that, does that sort of make sense? So I think this is a twisting, and I want to say in the Hebrew Bible, I see that a little bit as well. I just and, and we can all take different tacks on this, but I just cannot imagine the God I worship saying I should commit genocide. I cannot imagine that. Um, Part of this holy war says that you, you, you um, after you have um, conducted it, you gain nothing from it. That's it. In here, towards the end, the Jews fight and kill all the people. But they don't they take don't the stuff. Take the That's right. And that's part of the message is that these people weren't fighting um, to enrich themselves. They were fighting to survive. And in some sense, then, their struggle then... I mean, because as they think through, if they'd killed their enemies for plunder, well, who's to say that they actually killed their enemies and didn't just loot? And, and I think that's part of the, the fine line here, right? Who is actually a threat to you and who's somebody's rich that you'd like to profit off of? Does that make sense? He agrees. Yeah. The other thing to remember is that in, in 1 Samuel, um, David's going to be the king, not Saul's house. So you know how monarchies are supposed to work. The firstborn son of the monarch becomes the king. And Saul has one of those. Jonathan, who, by the way, is actually a pretty nice guy. Like, arguably, like, one of the few good guys in the Hebrew Bible, one of the very few. And notice in the book, Jonathan doesn't want to become king. Jonathan gives his own crown to David. And the book is trying to tell you David should have been the king, not Saul. But again, when you read through this, I'm not really convinced Saul was such a bad guy based on the passage we read. I, I personally think he probably did intend to fulfill the command. Um... We have to read it our own way, but again, I think part of the book is trying to say God didn't want Saul to be king anymore. Or the people didn't. I mean, you just, we've got we to sort of parse that out. Willing to die. Um, she, she says, If I die, I die. 
and it's kind of a selfless act. And um, and so she kind of, and then she, she struggled and prevailed in this environment which she really hated. Um, and, um, and so I just said, she kind of had was the vector for um, kind of that holy war. And then also contrasting that with Vashti, who really doesn't get mentioned, but um, her disobedience, um, you can look at it and say, oh, she wasn't an obedient woman um, from the perspective of these men, but had it not been for her disobedience and keeping kind of her chastity and not entering into this kind of drunken, you know, um, scene, she creates the opportunity for for Esther to, to step in and, and open the door. And this is one of the, you got it, right? In some ways, like, Vashti saying no, Vashti says no, and Esther says yes. Vashti is the woman who says, I won't play the stereotypical woman's role. And Esther is the one who does, but does it in such a way that she manipulates the future. So, you know, there's, there's um, maybe helpful to say there's different kinds of critics. I, I don't mean they're critical negative. I mean different ways of, of studying and thinking through this. In the, in the biblical feminist perspective, who is the heroine of Esther, do you suppose? It's Vashti, right? Because Vashti sort of realized, now there's this line, maybe she's supposed to come naked, who knows, it doesn't matter. What woman <laughs> called before a group of drunken men should not be suspicious. <laughs> I, you, you know what I mean. And, and so interestingly enough, the feminist position says, here's a woman who says no to the patriarchy. She says no. And of course, look what happens to her. She's exiled and quarantined, and that's the patriarchal response. Esther, on the other hand, and this is, I, I actually really appreciate the study materials this week and the video. There, there was a... Um, movie that came out like 10 years ago. I was teaching Bible at this fundamentalist Christian school. I think it was called A Night with the King. And it's rated PG. Friends, that's an X-rated movie. A Night with the King is not like playing girl talk and doing pedicures, right? It's very clear that whoever pleases the king the most in bed will be the new queen. And notice, interestingly enough, Esther not only does that, but she decides to do it well, and so she asks the king's eunuch, what is he like? <laughs> and the eunuch tells her. I mean, who knows what he tells her, right? Um, but, but it's not singing nursery rhymes. I mean, she's saying what it is the king most enjoys physically. And Esther does that. She plays the stereotypical woman's role. And then, interestingly enough, this happens over and over and over again in the Bible. Remember, we already saw this in Ruth. She plays that role, but in the end, she plays it so well that she manipulates the outcome. We can ask, is God telling us this is how women should behave? Or is this describing how it is that women have survived, how it is that women have been able to have some voice. Because I think those are very different. Too, maybe Jews, too, in the, you know, 
that they were talking about how to assimilate to some degree yeah. in the, 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 I say diaspora, I think. I've That's right. Wrong. That's right. Um, she said diaspora. It doesn't matter. Oh, okay. It depends which way we pronounce the Greek word. There's two pronunciations of Greek words. So you can do either way. But she, the um, video was about uh, um, Jews too. Um, and, I, and I think manipulation is a natural part of life. Um, yeah. Uh, and survival. But I think it's something that's been forced on women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you said they made the law that what, the husband would be down. And you said, I don't know how they would enforce it. Seriously, it Well, but I mean at a national level. I understand how it works but in the home level. Universal. Yeah. Yeah, notice the king signs this law that Jews can all be killed because the king doesn't know any Jews, as far as he knows. So, why is this book in... The Old Testament. I mean, maybe we can answer that as a group. I will tell you, if you're Jewish, this is the dead last book in the Bible because it has the least authority. Um, the Jewish perspective in general is the only reason this book is in the Bible is because it describes one of the Jewish high holy festivals, which is Purim. And just to put that in perspective, um, we just had about a month ago Rosh Hashanah. That's called Rosh Hashanah, but in Hebrew it's Rosh Hashanah, ahead of the year, beginning of the year. On that day, God writes your fate for the coming year. And you have 10 days before Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to correct your fate. On Yom Kippur, God seals your fate for the year. So that those 10 days between the two are sort of like Lent. You're supposed to get reconciled with anybody you're estranged from before your fate is sealed. Otherwise, you kind of get what you deserve. So, there are Jewish people who literally will fly across the country during those 10 days to seek reconciliation so that they can have a better year. That Yom Kippur is the only day of the year that's a forced fast, so you neither eat nor drink that day. Um, then comes this huge... And by the way, in the Bible, Rosh Hashanah is not even a day. It, depending which book you read, the head of the year is Passover, or it's Sukkot. It's not its own day. Or it's Yom Kippur. Um, so there's about five different ways you could celebrate the New Year if you're Jewish. Sukkot's the next one, and we just did that like 10 days ago. That's the one where you sleep outside for a week, and you build kind of like an awning or a, a trellis. You have to be able to see stars, and it's a way that you sort of say, my ancestors wandered in the wilderness, and I am too. So you kind of reconnect yourself with the nomadic wandering of the people. And, and you'll read this next week. That's where Hanukkah comes from. Hanukkah is made up. It's really Sukkot. Um, there's another thing that Jewish people didn't really do for a long time. They do now called Simchat Torah. We're going to do that pretty soon. On that day, you go to the synagogue and you read the whole Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the whole Pentateuch, and you're grateful for the law. After that is Purim. And that next time we'll do Purim is in March. So it comes just a bit before Passover this year. But remember, this changes because it's on a lunar calendar. 
What happens on Purim is, is sort of uh, a couple of things. You go to the synagogue, and the, the Esther scroll is read, um, but uh, with a couple of variations. So um, they have something called a grogger, which is like a, a noisemaker. And every time the name Haman is read, you, you grog. Um, interestingly enough, Haman is like the archetype of all czarist pogroms of Adolf Hitler. In some ways, Haman is worse than Hitler. So you cannot stand to hear the name Haman. The, the reader, the Chazan, has to read it, but you don't want to hear it. Uh, People wear masks, usually the day after. They usually have a carnival because Esther kept her Jewish identity secret. She kept it so secret she didn't observe kosher food law, like they, like they said, because she wouldn't have been able to eat anything. Um, other things that happen on Purim, you're supposed to drink so much wine that you cannot tell the difference between the names Mordechai and Haman. Yeah, that's a lot of wine, right? Because those sound nothing <laughs> at all alike. So when he said it's this festive thing, it is. It really is. And think through the Jewish history that you know. Um, this book is about Jewish people not being exterminated from pogroms and inquisitions and holocausts. I mean, this is the book saying um, God's lurking out there somehow. I mean, God doesn't show up in the book at all. God doesn't talk to anybody. God's name isn't even mentioned in the Hebrew text. And yet, the Jewish people survive. So this is sort of your, 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 your banner book. Um, the book says this. Uh, you can make these things. They're triangle-shaped like cookies with some jelly in the middle. They're called hamantaschen. Uh, the, the legend, and that's Yiddish, by the way, um, the, the idea is that Haman wore this three-cornered hat, so you make Haman's hat and then you eat it up. <laughs> um, his brains are very sweet. I, I, I don't, anyway, you, you're, sort of, you're, you're recreating his hat as a symbol of oppression, but in the end, right, it's, it's a cookie. You know, it's really nothing. Uh, that's how Purim sort of goes now. And, and most rabbis would say... This is telling you why we do Purim. And again, the function is, uh, this is about deliverance and survival once again. Deliverance and survival. When, uh, what describes, in terms of timeline, what describes, which book describes the last uh, time before um, B.C.? Yeah, so I think what you're asking, right, is when, which book in the Hebrew Bible is the last chronologically to have been composed? No, not so much composed, but describing a time. I mean, that that is. I mean, Jesus yeah. occurred at, at 30 CE. Right. Mm -hmm. If you go to, I presume all of these are BCE. All of them are BCE. So what is the what describes the last in BCE? Probably the book of Daniel, which we'll read next week. And depending who you are, Daniel either was writing in um, like 580 BCE and predicting future events. Most scholars think Daniel was written around the time 167 BCE and describing current events. I'll sort of tell you about that next week. So about 165 BCE is the, late, is the late, last, if you will, history of the Jewish people 
in that's in the Bible. The Old Testament. Yeah, now there's other sources, and we'll read some of them next week, that are in a, a collection of writings called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is not like a scary Catholic thing, just to, to give you a precursor on this. Um, since the Reformation and before, the Apocrypha has always been an appendix to the Bible. They've always been together, but is an appendix. So, for the longest time, Christians read these as historical documents, but with a secondary level of inspiration, as in they're not sacred scripture. They got brought into the Catholic Bible at the Council of Trent, that's in the 1580s, that's Counter-Reformation, as a display of papal power. The Pope said, I'm more important in the Bible and I'll prove it. The Apocrypha's in the Bible, says me. Now, I don't want to make it sound calculating and cold, but it was. <laughs> it was. But Protestants have always read the thing until the 1700s. We always read that Apocrypha knowing that they're historical documents. And, and then you'll get to read some of them next week, the Maccabees in particular, tell you about events happening probably during the time of Daniel. This book, hard to peg, probably not written at the time it describes. Because none of the books were written at the time to describe, is what most folks will say. They were passed down. Probably verbally first. Probably verbally first, yep. And again, this, this book is describing why do we do Purim and how Jewish people were saved. And I'll tell you, particularly looking forward to next week, you're going to read about another pogrom during the book of Daniel, led by a Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes, in which anybody who was circumcised was killed. And anybody who had a Torah scroll was killed. That's a pogrom, a Torah scroll. If you had any sacred text, you were killed. I mean, this is talking about that kind of pogrom. So this is encouraging that deliverance will come, I think. What's interesting, I want to point out, is that sometimes in the Christian imagination, I mean, I've, I've sort of grown up that the Christians are these persecuted people, and they were for a little bit, but friends, let's just be honest about that. There's no Christian persecution, not really. I mean, if you're going to run for president and you're uh, of the Baha'i faith, good luck. I mean, really, let's just be honest about that. Um, there are people who might say your religion is silly or I don't believe in Christianity, but there aren't pogroms against Christians in this country. There never have been in the United States a pogrom against Christians. I hope this is okay what I'm saying. But I grew up hearing that we're just, everybody hates Christian people, but, but it's culturally advantageous to be Christian here. I don't think it's culturally advantageous to live the ethics of Jesus, <laughs> but I think it is culturally advantageous to say you're Christian. Is, is that, do, do you get what I'm saying? Is that okay? Well, you know, in the book, um, The Source by Michener, they talk about the... Um, Crusaders going into Israel and just killing... Wholesale killing everybody. And even Christians that didn't dress like they thought they should be dressed. And, yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't, in my mind, it wasn't a good time even to be Christian there. Yeah. Yeah, actually, more... Uh, what is it? During the, 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 the Thirty Years' War... Christians killed more Christians than died in World Wars One and Two total body count, period. Which is crazy to think about. 
in the name of Lutheran versus Catholic or Zwingli versus Catholic, right? So these are, these are inter-Christian wars claiming more people than world wars claimed. I'm over-talking, sorry. Let's get back to Esther. Well, she, said, she answered my question. Why were there two names for that king? Ahasuerus and Xerxes, yeah. What's a satrap? A satrap is a governor. So I, I mentioned this a little bit last week that um, one of the innovations of the Persian Empire is a very complex and arcane Byzantine, if I dare say, bureaucracy. So what the Persians were were master administrators, and the way they did that was not by deporting people or intermixing them, but rather by a complex set of governors and vice governors and mayors and councils to ensure that people had some say. But you know, really, when you've got a complex bureaucracy, it really um, weighs down potential revolutions. <laughs> And so that's what they did, and it really enhanced what they were able to take in. To put in perspective, at the beginning of the book, we read there's a feast for 180 days. That, that's a little much. Like, that's crazy. That's half a year. Um, but I do want you to know there's a city in modern-day Iran called Persepolis. It's possible you've heard of it before. Uh, it sort of was a wonder of the world until Alexander the Great burned it down. That could have happened intentionally or by accident. But that huge city existed solely to collect tribute. So no king lived there. The king camped there, and all the subjugated peoples, according to their satraps, brought tribute to the king, and that would have been the wild feast. Um, Interestingly enough, just for fun, different people had to bring different things according to what they had. So you can see these friezes at Persepolis. They're still there. where one group of people had to bring wine, another brought dromedaries, and interestingly enough, the Elamites had to bring lions because they were known for bringing lions. So their, their tribute, and by the way, that, that's what this is here, it's from the wall of Persepolis, um, is bringing lion cubs to Cyrus and Darius, etc., because that was their tribute. And, and that was a, it was sort of like a wild party for the Persian government to show how awesome and unoverthrowable they were. Because you came with all the other subjugated people and saw the immense wealth and tribute of everybody the emperor overruled. It was public. It was extravagant. If you know anything about the Shah, the Shah did this thing there in 1976. It was like the 2500th anniversary of the Persian Empire. Does anybody know about this? The Shah threw this extravagant party, the 2500th anniversary of the Persian Empire, and he built these tents and he had food flown in from Paris. And Gandhi was there, and, and Gandhi only owned three things. And, 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 you know, the Shah embezzled billions of dollars from the Iranian people, you know, and he lived in this utter luxury. I mean, just extravagance and... Um, Gandhi was extremely critical of this celebration, and ultimately the Iranian people were too, because they overthrew the Shah. I mean, this, sort of, this was this display of grandiosity that actually was in keeping with the feast described here. 
Now, Esther, at, when she was praying, she got rid of all her, her fancy robes, put on sackcloth, and she put dung on her head. Now, all of this to, to take, explain. Okay, and remember, that only happens in the Greek version. So in the Hebrew version, she didn't do any of that stuff. In the Greek version, what she's trying to do is utterly debase herself as a sign of, like, probably as a sign of her relative value before God. And, and so we, we have these traditional signs now and then of repentance and think through what they are. Um, we always do Ash Wednesday. We put ashes on ourselves. We always hear about sackcloth, right? So sackcloth is burlap. Mm -hmm. It's extremely uncomfortable. And it, it, it's meant to be like sort of like this, this bit, you know, where, where monks flagellate themselves. It's not that extreme to like punish themselves. Instead, the goal of the sackcloth is that every time it agitates you, it reminds you of your need to repent. How often does it agitate you? All the time. <laughs> because when you breathe, it moves against your hairs, you know, and it agitates you. So it really is like a constant call to repent. Some people now wear wristbands and stuff like that. But, but again, it's this constant reminder. Um, fasting is another sort of thing. But the goal of the fast is not to hurt yourself because God loves us being miserable. It's really meant to do a couple of things. Help you focus your intent on God or prayer or holier living than you were doing. And it's meant to be a trade so that instead of eating and focusing on the food, you take that time and you focus on prayer or repentance. Now we often get that wrong because we come from this unfortunate tradition of mortification that says God's happy when we're miserable. We show God how much we mean we're sorry when we hurt ourselves. But all of this stuff is really meant to trade focus. So we trade our focus on food for focus on prayer or repentance. If we don't do that, I want to tell you, we're doing Lent completely wrong. It's really about making holy trades. The dung on your head is, is sort of this symbol. It's sort of like when you kneel before you pray, kneel when you pray, or, you know, I grew up, my first Episcopal church, we always knelt and genuflected before we sat down. It, it, it's not magic. It doesn't do anything splendid for God, but it does help set our intention. And so the bit about dung in your hair is probably this symbol of, hey, like, I'm going to, I'm going to live better into my humility. Which is not that we're crap, but we often think of ourselves differently than we ought. So it's this, this sort of way of, of physically debasing ourselves. Before God. Before God, not before other. I mean, we could make a show of it, yeah. but, the, but the goal is really just so we can retune our center. And I got the, the impression that she was alone when she was doing this. Probably so. Wasn't a, you know, she wasn't showing uh, that to anyone else. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Now, ashes are this other thing. You know, ashes go way, way back. You burn these sacrifices up for God, but there's leftovers. And my own theory on that is sort of saying even our best things are tinged with sort of yucky bits. Now, you know, in the, in the olden days, the person who cleaned the ashes 
had to burn their clothes and they had to be quarantined because they'd touched the dregs of the offerings. And so this, this bit about sitting in ashes or ashes on your head, I think, is probably this admission that even at our best, we're still selfish. I'm not sure that that's wrong, I just think it's true. You know, and helpful to read a Jesuit who said, a saint is somebody who's aware of the selfishness of their every action. So that's kind of what ashes, I think, really mean. They can be a symbol of our mortality. You know, and we're getting ready to do this on, on All Saints Day as well. Uh, when we think about Dia de los Muertos, you know, that skull mask, and it's beautified. I mean, I think the truth is, we have this thought that some of the things we do have no future. And, and let's name those licentiousness, greed, fornication, theft, murder. Those things have no eternality. But we also have this belief in things like goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And these things outlive us. <laughs> and I think sort of the, the bit about the skull on the face and the ashes on the head is... <coughs> Our bodies are going to die. Many of the things we choose to do are going to die. But some of the things we do sort of live on in God eternally. So what choices will we make? Will we choose things that die with us? Or will we choose things like kindness and compassion and empathy that ultimately live on forever in God? I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> I think I just spoiled the sermon. <laughs> Yeah. I, I thought something was interesting, and, and that's that I can't, don't remember which book because it started with the it started um, uh, in the book, and it's that the king um, can't sleep, and he said, "Bring me the records." Now, what caused that? And that's when he reads that Mordecai is the one. Who... Boy, if you if you're having trouble sleeping, <laughs> listening to the royal record will put you right out. Think about how we just read one Chronicles. If somebody read that to you, especially James Earl Jones, you'd be gone. <laughs> so that was the intended effect, I would say, is yes. to put him to sleep. But interestingly enough, he heard this story and, man, either the reader was so bad or he had such indigestion or he had too much coffee that he couldn't sleep and he actually listened to the darn thing. And then he said, what happened to that guy? I think. I mean, it could mean but something it means something. Else. I mean, I find it interesting that, that it wasn't anyone that said, oh, go, go read this. Yeah. He just, he said, bring me this record. And I just wondered what incented him. And I'm sure it's just part of the story, but I mean, but some else, there seemed to be a link yeah. in here except for that. There was no link between something before and... So my, my again, my, my guess on this is really it has to do with the soporific, soporific effect of listening to the annals of the king. Uh, my wife is somebody who listens to books on tapes to go to sleep. And um, we really liked the source, and, and I bought her the source. Before that, she only listened to um, the Ken Follet books. Um, what are they? World Without End is the second one. The first one is uh, the four pillars. pillars of the Earth. So she listened to those every night, and she knew the story so well there was really no need to listen. You know? 
And I bought her the Source, which was enormously expensive because it came on 56 CDs. You know, I mean, that book, it's like 90 hours of listening, you know. And uh, she listened to it, and, and then she didn't listen to it again because it wasn't putting her to sleep. She was listening to the story. So she still listens to Pillars of the Earth and A World Without End because she knows them so well she doesn't need to listen to them. But there's something about this familiar story that puts her to sleep. Um, so I think it's probably that. Myself, that's my own theory. BBC at night, do that for you. Yeah. <laughs> Listening to our SoundCloud, including this class, might put you to sleep on a difficult <laughs> night. Yeah. You notice that this is a comedy. They keep seeing how funny this book is. I don't think it's funny at all, but I think it's a comedy like Taming of the Shrew. You know, when I when I heard in high school, this is a comic I kept waiting to laugh and there was no laughing really all it means is this is a story about poetic justice which is which is what comedy means in the genre it's it isn't funny here I mean I'm just, well, I don't think so it's it's poetic justice um so the the I guess council of Nicaea is what determined the New Testament. Nope, nope, that happened yes. at the Council of Chalcedon. Okay, Council of, what happened at the Council of Nicaea? Nicaea is when we made the Nicene Creed, which made the, the view that Jesus was a created being, the Arian view, became heretical, even though the emperor himself held that view. <laughs> at Council of Chalcedon in 381 is when they appended to the Nicene Creed uh, that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, and proceeds from the Father, not in the Son, just from the Father. With the Father and the Son, the Spirit is worshipped and glorified. That came at Chalcedon along with um, the final setting of the New Testament canon. See, at the Council of Nicaea, it wasn't decided, and in the time in between, Christians were not reading James. Some of them were reading the Shepherd of Hermas. Some of them were reading the book One Enoch which is super weird. Thank God those didn't make it. <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, but they almost did, and James almost didn't. So that's sort of what happened there. Well, the reason I'm a asking the question is, was there a similar council that put together the, the Old Testament? Yeah, so what a lot of people point to is that during the Jewish rebellion that happened in 70 of our common era, that's when the temple was burned to the ground, the Sac Herod's temple, uh, that rebellion started in 67. Before the temple was burned, there was a group of sort of Jewish scholars that ultimately became the rabbis, that we now call the rabbis. In general, they seem to have been Pharisees who went to this place called either Jamnia or Yavna, and that's sort of where they dedicated themselves not to uh, temple ritual, but to Torah study. And out of Jamnia or Javna was like the final seal on what's in the Hebrew Bible. Because the Torah is just the first five books. It is, but but it's funny. It's it, it means that, and it also means the whole the whole. Okay. I should be more clear. The Tanakh, the Torah, the Nabim, and the Ketubim, the whole bit sort of came out of that. I mean, and the reason I'm saying that is because in seventy, when the temple was burned down, there were Jewish people who only read the Torah, mm -hmm. the Sadducees. Um, so was their decision ultimately binding when they made it for all Jewish people? No, 
the, the truth is that's the group that survived because if you're a Pharisee and you have to worship at the temple and there's no temple, hard to be a Pharisee. <laughs> if everything says I have to offer sacrifice and you can't, you can't be. So they sort of win the day and then Christians sort of keep the Jewish Bible, albeit we've reordered it. So it's got all the same contents, but in different order. And in the Christian tradition, we say, um, no book has more authority than the other. We say that, but we don't believe that. <laughs> because nobody would give Leviticus the same credence we give the Psalms or the Gospels. I mean, we just have to be honest about that. In the Jewish Bible, though, it's very different. The Torah has more authority than any other book. And Esther is the least important. So if Esther ever challenges something from the Torah, you throw Esther out. If, if that makes sense. We do that too. We just aren't as honest about it. This is what I want to say. So in there at one point they mentioned going down to Hades. Now, is that, how did the Jews view so, so Hades is like Tartarus. These are these are Greek words here. The Hebrew word is Sheol. It's also called the pit. But please notice, it's not ever called that. So this is totally different. Um, it, it, this comes around much, much later, this idea of hell. And uh, the idea that it's eternal and it's punishing, even later still. Right? I'm going to go backward a little bit. Um, the Greek word... <coughs> Um, Gehenna <coughs> is actually from a place outside Jerusalem called Ben Hanom. We actually talked about this two weeks ago. Um, you know, Jerusalem's on a, on, a, on a hill. Here's Mount Zion, and there's a valley called the Kidron that goes down here. The relative minimum point right here is Ben Hanom Valley, where two things happen all the blood and waste came down. It was sort of the trash dump where the ashes were thrown after sacrifices. But because it was relative minimum, it's also where gods of the earth were worshipped. So gods of the sky get worshipped at maxima, gods of the earth at minima. Gods of the earth are, uh, and we heard their name, Chemosh, Nilkam, Molech. And those are the gods to whom you would burn your firstborn child alive. Um, so In the New Testament, the word Gehenna is the word our translators have translated as hell, but it really is a place of total destruction. It's a place where you have to appease God by burning up your future. That's a pretty interesting metaphor for hell, isn't it? Let me think through that. Properly understood, hell is when we think we curry God's favor by giving up our most valuable things. Now at that figurative level, many of us have lived in hell. I, I would tell you I have also lived in hell in other ways. <laughs> if you know somebody who is a drug addict or an alcoholic, that's hell, if that makes sense. It's, it's not eternal punishment, but it is this place in which God is really hard to find, not just for you, but everybody else. I mean, you can talk to any addict. The sense of God's presence, really not strong in the middle of addiction. 
Um, this became a place of eternal punishment and eternal torment later than at the time of Jesus. So at the time of Jesus, um, heaven and hell have different understandings than, than we have now. A lot of this bit about eternal punishment and ironic punishment came out of Dante Alighieri's Inferno and was ratcheted up by John Milton. So if you really like to know why we think hell is like it is, you should read Milton, not the Bible. Um, before that, this is the older idea in Hebrew. Sheol is the place of the dead. So when you die, you go there. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can read Job. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're young or you're old. When you die, you go to the pit. You go to the dead people. And in ancient Mesopotamia, this happened too. Your ancestors sort of, well, you, you celebrate them. You put food in their graves. You take care of them, and when you stop, they just sort of fade away. There wasn't really an understanding of eternality of the soul until they met Greek philosophers. Hebrew people didn't think you had a soul. They thought you were one. Your soul is the totality of your being. And you'll notice that when you read the New Testament, Paul talks about our bodies coming up out of the ground. Most of you are not interested in having your body forever, even your best one. But I'm sure you don't want the one you have now forever. There are parts of the body I have now that I like, but boy, I don't want this arthritis in heaven. You, you understand what I'm saying, right? But at the earliest time, resurrection was you, you got your soul back. All of it, including your arthritis and your hair and your pimples. I mean, <laughs> resurrection meant... Resurrection was for people whose life had been cut short because of their faith. They got to live the rest of their life, the life that had been denied. We'll talk about that next week more. But in the Hebrew Bible, you die, you go to the grave. Good or bad, rich or poor, young or old, Sheol. And that's true in Greek myth too. Everyone goes to Hades when they die. They go across the river Styx which is why you put the money on the people's eyes when they die so they can pay the ferryman. Now, there are some Greek myths in which some people get ironic punishments, but not everybody does. I mean, you just this is a dark place. It's under the ground. That's where you go. I would commend to you the, the myth of Orpheus and Persephone. Um, it's, it's not, Persephone's not punished being under the ground. She just is dark down there, and she's with Hades, the king of the underworld. The underworld, not hell. Does that make sense a little bit? On in the underworld. Well, it's just dark and, you know, a bunch of dead, dead people there. <laughs> but, but you're all dead, so no one seems to really matter. I mean... <laughs> yeah, there's neither of those things, you know. There's neither of those things. But, but I, I do want to point out, like... Ahead of next week, where we'll talk about it a little bit more. I mean, again, our understanding of heaven and resurrection have changed a lot since the Bible. Because, again, I don't know anybody that really thinks they get their body back like they have it now. I hope not, is what John said. Again, I, I hope not, too. I mean, I think about my granny. What's she going to be like in heaven? Well, I hope not in the state in which she died. Because the rheumatoid arthritis she had had twisted her spine completely in four directions. You know, that, there's no way she wants that body. There's no way you want that body. And that's probably really away from Esther now. 
and maybe I'm talking too much. Am I missing things that you that really stood out for you here? Well, I, one of the things that I read that I hope I'm not usurping this these questions um, was that um, the reason that Haman yeah Haman, Haman is Haman. what you say in in Hebrew Haman Haman um, gave for uh, or I'm reading now the letter that he sent out. It said that the Jews have laws contrary to those of every nation and disregard ordinances of the king. Which Absolutely think. true, isn't it? Absolutely true. <laughs> because they were following Torah. And the king's laws were, well, whatever he wanted. And you have to think through, this is true in Roman times too. The only reason that Jewish people were tolerated in Roman times is because they were old. They, I mean it, the religion was old, and so they had the respect of antiquity. Uh, Christian people didn't get that toleration because they were new. <laughs> Older religions were considered more valid. And Jewish people in the Roman Empire were considered, and you're not going to think this is like a weighty word, but it was back then, Jewish people were considered antisocial. Absolutely, and both people, uh, but again, Christians weren't tolerated in their atheism or their anti-socialism because they were new. The reason is, it all had to do with food. <laughs> uh, neither people group would sacrifice to the genius of the emperor. The genius is not like his brilliance, it's like his spirit, right? So Augustus declared himself Augustus means God made manifest, basically, the August one, and, and that's Octavian, that's Julius Caesar's nephew. And Jewish people wouldn't sacrifice to the emperor, and they wouldn't eat meat that had been sacrificed to the emperor. And by not doing that, you see, they weren't currying favor from the gods. So that's antisocial. And it really means anti-society. And think through, as we talk about Jewish history, pogroms, right? If somebody gets sick in Europe, then there's a Jew hunt. Because Jewish people are antisocial. They don't support Christianity and the Lord. So if something goes wrong, it must be because of them. This is an ugly history, but I hope you're familiar with it. Same thing happened, what do you know, in Salem. <laughs> And people got feverishly crazy, feverishly crazy because they were so afraid of this magic Satanism. They were afraid of antisocialism. That's what we call magic and Satanism in a civil term, if that makes sense. What do you think about Esther? I, I, I'm not baiting you here, and you may not want to talk about this. What do you think Esther would encourage us to do, given the recent Supreme Court nomination and challenge? Do you see any connection there? Vote. Vote on justices? <laughs> Vote in general.
Anybody else? Well, uh, the uh, thing maybe the situation was very similar to what the King's Court was because you know a lot of drunkards and, and uh, not necessarily keeping any kind of serious law and whatever the King decided was the law. I mean, is there a comparison there? Well, I, I mean, I... I mean, the king's court was not really something that was up, really upstanding. Let's put it that way. In other words, they, they, I guess they followed some other god or something of that sort. But the thing is this, it wasn't a real um, high-caliber society, so to speak. Especially the, the... I mean, that's the only comparison I can see right now. Whether it be, um, in this case, the king, and, 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 and Kavanaugh irrespective, not talking, but the society in which we <coughs> live, the society of privilege is very similar mm -hmm. in a way to the king. Yeah. And, and, this, and the idea that, that you could get away with things because of where you were. I don't think I think is pretty con yeah. consistent through down yeah. down through the eons. Yeah. I, I, by the way, I'm not trying to weigh out like, oh, he did it or he didn't do it, and, and that's not what I'm looking for because ultimately we don't know, yeah. right? I mean, we we don't know, and that's the sad bit. Um, but it is interesting to think that look what happens when Vashti speaks out, and look how the two people's testimony was treated. Do you think it was given equal merit? Do, do you know what I mean? Was was Doctor Ford given the same sort of chance that Kavanaugh was? It might depend on which party or what you believe in, but we're talking about the national stage here. Do 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 you know what I mean? Well, I think if if you well for me, I think if you draw inspiration for Esther, and I think the thing that I didn't see with this whole you know, um, debacle was it? It was just rushed through, and Esther fasted and asked Mordecai to do the same, and to focus and to spend time in retreat. And I don't think we did that as a, a society. We didn't really stop and really think about this because that's a lifetime appointment. Um, oh, I think we did think about it, and I think that's exactly why we proceeded quickly. Well, when I say we, I mean. You know, that's an interesting thing. And by the way, I'm not saying anybody has malice. But, you know, the truth is, I, I feel like we do live in an increasingly partisan society. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. When I was a kid, you didn't, you didn't hate somebody's idea because they were a different party. I was taught that you sort of waited on its merits. But, but I do think now, if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat, you automatically disqualify someone's idea because they're not one of you. I don't care which side you're on, that seems to be the political climate. And I see that as putting party before God, because I don't see that, uh, I mean, people who call themselves Christian support people who are immoral, who lie, things of that sort. I mean, it seems to me that, the, that um, the, we are really in a bad situation because we are so caught up in success and lust and power and accomplishments and fame and fortune and things of that sort that we're really not 
listening to what God has to say, we're putting our own desires first, and, and for so many people, that is, party comes first. It doesn't make any difference about the morality of the people involved. If the party gives them what they want, they support the party. And that's idolatry. But then I think the other question we have to ask is, when's the last time you voted for somebody who you absolutely supported the morality of? But not really John Gay said. <laughs> <laughs> but then we didn't really know what we know now. In other words, I was I read an article in the Chronicle this morning about the Vietnam War. And it was a real eye-opener for me because of the corruption and all this other stuff. And I thought, you know, back then we didn't have all that information. At least I didn't have it. Now it's everywhere. You know, you you have we have more information to make decisions with. And sometimes it's just a matter of choosing the one with lesser of lesser evil. You know, because nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. You gotta go by what the degree of what the mistake is. We have all this information, but I think we're voting or it seems to me that we're voting more along party lines and not using all this information we have about individual mm -hmm. people. We're we're not voting for individual people. We're still voting along party lines, regardless of what we whether we agree with the individual person or not. I, I think what's that's interesting because I've thought a lot about this because my brother and I we were brought up by the same parents, same household, <coughs> not that far apart in years. We are 180 degrees apart in terms of our politics, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I just think, how did he get here? Yeah. But then sometimes I got to think, how did I get here? Yeah. Um, it's really difficult. Um, I just spent the weekend with him. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we we're very careful not to talk about yeah. politics. <laughs> very careful. Yeah. It's like two different worlds. You see, I think it's beyond that. I, I, I think that there's this interesting thing that showed up like, oh, fake news. But I actually think fake news is a really interesting thing because I, I've met people, I'm just going to give an example, but it could go both ways, who would say, I don't care what any investigation reveals, Donald Trump is the guy. I don't even care what the investigation reveals because I know it'll be cooked up. But, I, but I've heard that on both sides. I don't care what any investigation says. I know Hillary Clinton's the thing, you know? And so, so how it is we've got this mindset that we know regardless of any facts is sort of interesting. And I want to suggest, like, that's, that's a really a careful, uh, careful criticism for us to think about. Because uh, that's called idolatry. And it doesn't just happen in politics. It happens in religion. It happens with the way we consider people of other faiths. Uh, this is really sort of a, a tough, tough go here, you know. And uh, again, I think we have this opportunity in this book to sit back and reflect on the state of power and the way a people group can just be written off as worthless or antisocial or expendable. Um, to think about women's roles, if I asked you... How many of you would prefer your daughter do what Vashti did, or how many would you prefer your daughter do what Esther did? I'm curious to know what you think. Well, 
given the fact that I, that we know what happened after Ashley made that decision, I'd pick Ashley. But if you had, but if Ashley had been put to death when she didn't do it, hmm, different answer. I think women of the future will have to do both. Well, I think women have always had to do both. <coughs> but what do you want your little girl to do? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, this I think is the real hard is the hard bit. Well, Maybe it depends upon the situation. Well, you know, when we go back, you know, it, it, this has been going on for, you know, since Adam and Eve. But, you know, the way uh, Genesis is interpreted right now to most people is that there's any an inequality between Adam and Eve. Whereas when you really start looking at the languages in which it was written and the meaning of the words and things of that sort, God actually created Adam and Eve at the same time. In other words, it was more, the, the earth creature had, you know, uh, in Hebrew the word uh, man can be taken as male or fem and female. But just tell me what you want your daughter to do. <laughs> no, the thing is this, well I think we need to go back so we can give our daughters a better information is to go review, visit that Genesis story, get it right, and then see how it's been carried out through the millennia and work to change it. Hmm. I have a Vashti. You have a Vashti. I, my daughter, when she was five and, and first joined the Daisies Scouts, we went to the United Way building and we walked by the Boy Scout building and the store and she was like, oh. and then we went to the Girl Scout store and she, it was the first time my daughter recognized disparity. She said, how oh, come man. that store, and she was five years old, no, I am not even joking. And my kid is bright, but still, I mean, she was like, how come they have all that stuff? And I was, and I just watched her and I said, well, and I, and I tried to explain it the way you would, you know how you say, explain to me like I'm a five-year-old. And then she, and she, she put her hands on her hips and she just marched herself over to the Boy Scout store and she was showing me everything that they had, they didn't have next yeah. door. And I think she's always been that little fireball. And I admire it. And in my life, I've had to be both. Yeah. And when I was in uh, OT school, when I was in my last year, I, I had some problems and this uh, person that was in charge of letting me go forward or not, the dean, the only way I knew how to approach him was, and at the time I was smaller, but I put on a short skirt and a blouse and I had makeup on, I had my hair done, and I went in there to get my way so I could get through school. Yeah. I'm not proud of that moment. But I did it because I knew it's what I had to do. To, to survive. Yeah. To survive. And um, I think about that moment. But I also know that inside of me, you know, she was burning. You know, I was Esther, but I was the burning on the inside. And I played the role on purpose, and I did it. And I pulled it off. I got myself through what I needed to get through. So is the question then, uh, which one do you want your daughter to be, which probably most of us would want to be Vashti? Is it more, when do you... Which one? Probably, I mean, I think that's the sad reality, sad, right? Yeah. It's, it's really nice. easy for me to say as a man, like I want my daughter to be Vashti, sure. but I also know that that threatens her survival. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't want my daughter to have to do it this other way. But I have to face it, not to this extent, but my wife has to do it this way. When she goes to court, she has to bring three changes of clothes in case the judge doesn't like what she's wearing. No man does that. Now, I know that's not like about seductress or whatever, but she could categorically say, nope, I'm wearing the skirt suit. And the judge is the judge. And is not going to lose his appointment over that. His appointment over that. And I think this is the hard bit about the book, is to step back and say, we, we have moral ideals, and then we have like survival, and hopefully we can get to the moral ideal, and in the meantime, we've got to survive. And It's ugly. This is why I think the Bible is super relevant. Super relevant. The description is so apt here. So In many ways, the same thing with Ruth. She had to survive. Mm-hmm. I don't want my daughter to be Ruth. I want her to be Boaz. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know? I don't, I don't want my daughter to have to, you know, use her sexuality to survive. Mm-hmm. I've never had to do that. Because I won't ever have to do that. And, and that's the sad bit, is, is I won't and she might. And this, the, the interesting thing here, and I don't want to sound like too ultra-feminist, you know, but the comments my daughter gets are, what a pretty dress. We would never say that to a boy, what a pretty shirt. Right? She, the feedback she gets is about her. You do? Yeah, but you might say you look handsome or what a nice looking shirt. This is a tough thing, though, because you don't call little boys bossy. You do? You might. You might. You might. You might. Strong. Well, I think they get called strong leaders. Yeah. I have two grandsons. I tell them, knock it off. You're bossing everybody around. Nobody cares. Daughter, Last try. My daughter is like, you're not the boss of me. Oh, yeah. Into <laughs> anybody. Last try. A, for, a, a pushy man is never called a bitch. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. He, has the, he has the flip side to that, which is what I would call, and I'm jumping in here, B-A-S-T-A-R-D. Women are bitches. But that didn't even mean anything anymore. That meant yes, something for <laughs> How about? But I mean, again, I think this this book pushes us pushes us a little bit. A girl in high school who sleeps with another boy is a hoe or a slut. And what's the equivalent for the man, the boy? Player, stud, right? I mean, and I, we can all find something to agree on about this disparity that's being mirrored here. Women are to be summoned, and they're to come when they're called, and if they don't, they live in isolation. I got in a huge controversy. I was in a leadership role in the American Red Cross, and I was uh, um, being evaluated by a very high official, and my evaluation said, um, you're aggressive. And I said, I'm not aggressive, I'm assertive. Yeah. And he said, no, you're aggressive. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, just this conversation proves that. Yeah. And I said, no, it does yeah. not. Yeah. I'm assertive. Yeah. I'm not aggressive. If I was a man, you would not say that. You'd call me a strong and, leader. Yeah. And it, it went back and forth. And this was at a high level of that organization. And a lot of women in that organization, and still I was told that. So I hope this conversation, you may not agree with all the points, but I hope the thing is, 
this, this deliverance of the Jewish people, and I think we can say it now, is not just for the Jewish people, it's for the world. And deliverance of women is not just for women, it's for men too. And, and I think that's the whole thing is the world needs to be made more whole. Um, if we did, we could 